According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 10. I feel like two weeks ago I left you hanging. And the reason I feel that way is because two weeks ago I left you hanging. And, of course, we were very blessed last Sunday with a missionary report from Billy Morgan and the update on things with VMI in the Philippines and and a real joy uh, for that. However, uh, the price of that is that we've been two weeks away from Hebrews and, and really we're at a key place here in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And I've said many times, Hebrews is my favorite book of the 66. Chapter 10 is my favorite chapter of the... 13 chapters of Hebrews, and inside of chapter 10, my favorite paragraph is right here. It's verses 19 through 25, because brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and the privilege that we have, the joy that we have, and we do so confidently. We have confidence. We're not stepping in there waiting to get struck down dead, wondering, ooh, did we did we do everything right? Did we bring the right sacrifice? Did I follow the procedures? There was a lot of fear in the Old Testament for the Levitical high priest because everything had to be done with precision, with correctness. With the, you know, just ask Nadab and Abihu what happens if you go in there with a the, with the strange fire. They were struck dead. That's not us. We have confidence. We enter within the veil. We stand before not the Shekinah glory, that was a physical manifestation. We stand before the glory of God the Father in the heavenly places in Christ. And this is a powerful, powerful section to, uh, to deal with. So I want to get right back into it. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call upon our Father and His faithfulness, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, to, to lead us into these, these deep, deep truths. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for truth, thankful for the truth that we have to study because you and your faithfulness have revealed your word. We've got a Hebrew canon, we have a Greek canon, we have the mind of Christ, Father. And I thank you that uh, beyond these blessings, Father, each believer priest of our, of our stewardship has the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who takes the spiritual things from your word and communicates them to our human spirits. I thank you for the grace provision, Father, and we call upon that grace provision today, that in your faithfulness you would open the eyes of our understanding, you you would open the ears of our hearing, prepare our hearts to receive the word implanted. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so really as we deal with the issues here, I want to stress once again that the veil is his flesh that we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We're not entering into the earthly replica. That earthly replica was destroyed in 70 AD when when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And they've not built a replacement temple yet. They want to, they will, at some point of time, they will build their third temple. And that's the temple that Antichrist will despoil when when he arises in the tribulation. So we're still in between, in, in human terms, we're still in between the second temple and the third temple of Israel's history. But those temples are just replicas of the heavenly reality, and we understand that. You and I function in the heavenlies. We are a heavenly citizenship. We stand before the Father in Christ Jesus in our heavenly priesthood. And so we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And so our entry, His blood made it possible, but His blood is not the veil. The veil is His flesh. That's what had to be torn. That's what had to be broken for us in uh, the shedding of His blood. And so we understand this. By a new and living way, which inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. We are the priesthood that brings living sacrifices, as per Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We bring living sacrifices. And then we have a high, a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. And so as I outline this sentence, and we can all kind of think of it this way, we have two since thens, since then and since then 
let us, let us, let us. Alright? You follow that? Since, since, let us, let us, let us. Okay? And so that's what we're dealing with here. Since then, we have confidence. That's the first since then. We have confidence and since we have a great priest. The, the highlight here I think is, is both and we want to recognize this and I actually listed this out for you in a point and I'm not sure I'll bring it back up again here but there's two things here. The priestly function of the church is based on what Jesus Christ did and based on what Jesus Christ continues to do. And those are the two since thens. The first since then is what he did on the cross. The first since then. Uh, the, the blood of Jesus, the new and living way he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. That's the since then that focuses on what he accomplished at Calvary. That's what he did in 33 AD. We go past that though to what he's doing now. This is the second since then. And the second since then is in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. That's the second since then. And this is vital because this, this sets the church apart. This is our priesthood in Christ in the church age. That when we go forward to the tribulation, we go forward to the millennium, uh, and even if we look back to the Old Testament saints and their stewardship, uh, we, we recognize, of course, that the blood of Christ was shed for all humanity. We recognize that the blood of Christ is the sacrifice for sin. It's the redemption of the human race in Adam. And we, we know that. We, so the blood of Christ is universal. I'm an unlimited atonement guy. That everyone in Adam is dead and everyone in Christ is made alive. And so the blood of Christ, the work that he did then, covers all of humanity, the entire human race. But the work that he's doing now, the present since then, the since then from verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. This is limited to the church. This is the body of Christ. This is the heavenly people. This is the role of the one who passed through the heavens and has been seated at the right hand of God. We are seated with him. This is limited to the bride and the body of Jesus Christ. And so our priestly function, based upon what he did, what he continues to do, and based on what he continues to do, it's limited to us. It's limited to the bride. So pay attention to that. The priestly function of the church presents each member as a living sacrifice, as the blood of Jesus Christ inaugurated a new and living way. Only church-age believers born again into a living hope are described as living stones in this embodied temple. And all of the blessings of living, 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 living that we have in these passages from the uh, living sacrifice to the new and living way to the living hope, uh, born again into a living hope and to the living stones uh, of, the, of the temple that First Peter delineates there. That becomes a marvelous study of its own. The heavenly veil is his flesh. It is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ by which he condemned sin in the flesh and cleansed the bride of Christ for our priestly function. It was the work that he did in the flesh. He did not come as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord could not die on the cross. The angel of the Lord, uh, he had to come in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. If he didn't identify with us in our humanity, in our weakness, then he's not our substitute in, in his work of atonement. We've got to recognize that. It's vital. It also forms what we do in our flesh because we want to live in the flesh no longer. We, we walk now by the Spirit. So the requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so tremendous doctrine that's found there in, uh, in Romans chapter 8 centered on that. All right. If you missed uh, the material we taught in chapter 3, uh, you might have missed the fact that the house of God is our priestly function. Now the term house of God does not mean that you're a believer. It's bigger than that. It does not mean that, well, you're saved and so uh, you're part of the house. No, the house of God, the word house, references the temple, references a priestly function. And so uh, with respect to chapter 3, there's the warning there whose house we are if we hold fast the assurance of our hope firm until the end. That it's a conditional holding fast. Our salvation does not depend on whether we stay faithful or not. 
We are eternally secure in Christ, and if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Understand, the book of Hebrews and every book, we teach eternal security of our salvation. We cannot lose our, for our salvation. However, we can for, uh, forsake our priestly function. And that's our role as the uh, Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. That's our role. The house of God is our priestly function, which carnal believers forsake when they fall away from the faith. It doesn't mean you're losing your salvation, but it does mean you're losing your priestly function. God will not listen to your prayers when you're carnal. The only thing you can do is confess. Then He will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right. And so let us. We have the since then, since then, since then, and then now let us. We're going to do three things. There's three let us, right? And I was trying to figure this out and I gave up. Because there's lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. And I figured out iceberg and romaine and I couldn't think of a third lettuce. So maybe a better pastor will come along and it comes up with a third lettuce that I'm not aware of. Tell me during the potluck. All right. Lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Okay? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And these are the three priestly functions that we have here as we function in Christ. Now, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering because, not because of our faithfulness, because He's faithful. The one who called us is faithful. And so I love this. And I love the confession that we have. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. This is a use of confession that's different from the First John 1-9 confession. It's still homologeo. We're still in agreement with God. We are declaring what God's declaring. But beyond simply declaring our sins and being restored to fellowship, this is the confession of our hope. This is the confession of our priesthood. The confession of our calling as a heavenly people in Christ. And, and Hebrews has addressed this throughout. Recognize our confession has an apostle and a high priest. Our confession has a throne of grace. We love that, don't we, from Hebrews 4.14? Our confession is mentioned there. Our confession has an apostle and high priest. Our confession has a throne of grace. Finally, our confession has a promised hope. Our confession has a promised hope. What's our hope? What is the hope of every church-age believer? Day by day, moment by moment. We're waiting for that trumpet to sound. We, we have that promised hope that all day, every day, we can anticipate this could be that day when the Lord Himself descends with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and we get caught up to be with Him in the air. This is our blessed hope. It's our happy hope. It's our living hope that we have in the body of Christ. So this is how we function in our priesthood, waiting daily for that trumpet to sound, waiting daily for that hope. Confessing Christ may have earthly consequences. We discussed this. I'm trying to get caught up from two weeks ago, and I don't exactly remember where we stopped, so um, we'll just briefly run through this, and then we'll gain the new ground. Confessing Christ may have earthly consequences, but not confessing Christ has heavenly consequences. And we saw that. The people that had fear to confess the Christ, or they'd be kicked out of the synagogue that they would not confess Christ because of human fears of, of uh, public opinion or uh, earthly consequences. But Jesus says, if you don't confess me before the Father, I won't confess you before the Father. And you're actually throwing away eternal rewards by not professing Christ publicly. By not professing Him publicly. And I noticed, as I was trying to get to that third hymn, did you spot it as well, number 714? I thought, wow, when have we ever sung this hymn before? It says, I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I thought, wow, that's our confession. That is telling the world, uh, making that good confession in the presence of many witnesses or in the presence of Pontius Pilate. As Jesus made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And so we are pleased to confess Christ. Confessing the good confession also demands that we fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 13 so when you do name the name of Christ, when you do confess the good confession, I tell folks when they come for water baptism, I say, you know, you're putting a target on your back and that's fine. I'm going to dunk you under. I'm going to bring you back up. 
And, and now you're fully engaged in the angelic conflict because uh, you're, you've confessed the good confession. You're going to fight the good fight. And that's what we're called to do. Hebrews has five warning passages as well as five proclamations of hope. And we got through these a couple weeks ago and looked at all these statements of hope. And it's remarkable when you look at these statements of hope and with, a, with an understanding that there are allusions to the rapture in every place. The, the understanding that our living hope, our daily expectation is to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ at a moment's notice. So Hebrews 3.6, Hebrews 6.11, Hebrews 6.18, Hebrews 7.19, and this one here in Hebrews 10.23. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Five proclamations of hope. Our faith is infinitely valuable because he is eternally faithful. Remember, the value of your faith is not how strong you hold it, The value of faith is the object, the merit of the object. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. He is infinitely glorious. He is eternally faithful. Our faith in Christ is of infinite value. Whereas if you place your faith in the wrong object, if you want to believe in Buddha or believe in Muhammad or believe in some false object, uh, you can believe in those things fervently and the, the fervency of your faith has no value whatsoever. You can even shout the, you know, Allahu Akbar thing and go be a martyr for for your false god. Your faith has no value whatsoever because it's in in a false object. It's worthless. But our faith is infinite, infinitely valuable because He is eternally faithful. All right. So let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. Can you hold on for one more day? Can you hold on? If you knew that the rapture was happening at 1245 this afternoon, do you think you could hold on through your current testing? If you knew that the rapture was going to happen first thing in the morning, if you knew the rapture was going to because it could. It could happen at any moment. And so just hold on. Hold on. One more day. Hold on. Okay? Hold on and keep holding on. Now, let us, let us consider... Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. All right. So while we're holding fast, we're also considering. And what are we considering? Well, chapter 3 told us to consider our high priest. And now chapter 10 tells us, consider how to provoke your fellow priests. So consider your high priest, then consider how to provoke your fellow priests. These are the two consider imperatives that we have. Same verb. From chapter 3, 1, consider Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of, of our confession. And now we're told to consider our fellow priests. And specifically, consider how to provoke them. Consider how to provoke them. Now this is a sanctified provocation. So take everything you know about carnal provocations and... adapt to a non-carnal application, all right? Because we all know how to provoke in a carnal way. We all know how to provoke. Every sibling knows how to provoke their siblings. Every, uh, and in provocation, you know how to poke. You know, spouses, your spouse knows how to push all your buttons. In fact, they know more buttons than you know related to pushing your buttons and you know how to push their buttons, okay? This is the the blessing, I say blessing, of intimacy. This is the blessing of close relationship. No one can hurt you more than the ones that are closest to you. Consequently, no one can bless you more than the ones that are closest to you. That's the price you pay for intimacy, all right? And so we have that joy of, of poking, that joy of provocation, that joy of sanctified stimulation, which is what we see here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. This should be the most stimulating sermon I've ever delivered in the history of Austin Bible Church because it's all about stimulation. It's about prompting, goading, poking one another. So consider your high priest, then consider your fellow priests and how we are to provoke them. So when we assemble together, we're here. Why are we here? We're here to learn. We're here to grow, of course. But we're also here mutually to minister one to another. And mutually ministering one to another includes this goading, this prompting. How can I urge you? How can you urge me? How can we urge one another to love and good deeds? 
Curious to me because love is not provoked. But believers can be provoked. Love is not provoked, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 5. The same verb. How's that for amazing? Okay. Love is not provoked, but we provoke one another to love and good deeds. Love is not provoked, but believers can be provoked. Interestingly enough, we can be provoked by pagans, partners, and pesky parishioners. <laughs> Told you, it's been the most stimulating message you've ever heard. You're going to walk out of here with your license. Everyone's going to have a pesky parishioner permit. And we're called to do this scripturally. Poking one another to love and good deeds. All right, so we've got a couple of examples here. In Acts 17, Paul was provoked. Acts 17, 16. I don't know what took him so long uh, because it was over several days, evidently. Um, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens and his team had been split up, he got driven out of Thessalonica, they went to Berea, they got chased out of Berea. Uh, evidently, um, Silas and Timothy were able to get back to Berea while Paul went by himself to Athens. And then uh, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. You ever look around the city of Austin and get provoked? All right. Well, it's biblical. Lot's righteous soul was vexed day by day. And look what it took to get him out of Sodom. Okay. Well, we can be provoked. How do we respond to that provocation? What does that provocation lead us to do? For Paul, it led him to witness, to preach his Mars Hill sermon, to speak the truth to these pagans. We can also be provoked by our partners. Acts 15.39, back up a couple chapters. And uh, Acts 15.39, Barnabas uh, provoked Paul because he wanted to bring John Mark along for missionary journey number two. And uh, Paul wanted none of that. John Mark had abandoned them on missionary journey number one. And uh, so we read in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with him also, but Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement. That's the provocation that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. And then very quickly they're going to pick up Timothy in the first part of chapter 16. And so those provocations are interesting. The things that will provoke. We saw in the introduction to Colossians last hour that something happened in the intervening years and Paul had had uh, an improved attitude related to John Mark because he was able to commend him to the saints in Colossae and able to commend him to, uh, to Philemon. So there's provocations. And so what do we do? How do we act? What happens when there's provocations between elders? What happens when Barnabas and Paul find a provocation between them? What happens if Glenn and I end up with a provocation, or Warren and I end up with a provocation? How do we handle the provocations? Well, there ought to be a whole lot more than there really are, because we should be actively involved in provoking one another to love and good deeds. And that's the, uh, the urging here in Hebrews 10, 24. Provoking. What are love and good deeds? Love and good deeds, these are the first things for the body of Christ. Love and good deeds, I call them the first things. In, in uh, Revelation, first love, first deeds. That's not an accident. And if we're going to goad one another to love and good deeds, this is what we're dealing with. The first things for the body of Christ. The first things are so fundamental, but even a pastor can lose sight of them. And the pastor of Ephesus Bible Church lost sight of them. He was rebuked in Revelation chapter 2 because he had left his first love. Let's take a look at that. Revelation chapter 2. You know what I'm talking about here? John is writing. And he's not writing to Timothy. 
the Ephesus situation is completely different than we're accustomed to in the 50s and 60s. We're accustomed to Ephesus in the 50s and 60s based upon the book of Ephesians, based upon 1 Timothy, based upon uh, the, the second missionary journey or the third missionary journey in the book of Acts. So we have Acts 19, we have 1 Timothy, we have Ephesians, we have, we have a lot of exposure to the church at Ephesus in the 50s and 60s AD. Now we have the description in Revelation that's different, and that's because 30 years has gone by. Now we're talking the mid-90s AD when uh, the Apostle John is now writing to the church in Ephesus. But you'll notice the rebuke is to the angelos of the ecclesia, to the angel, the messenger of the church. It's not the whole church that's left their first love. It's the messenger of the church that left his first love. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. So this pastor is battle-scarred. He's been through it. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. So when we goad one another to love and good deeds, we're actually goading one another to the, the primary elements of the church age, the first things for the body of Christ, the first things for our application or love and good deeds. You have left your first love. And it's interesting when he talks about the repentance in verse 5, he says, remember from where you have fallen and repent. And he says, do the deeds that you did at first. So we have first deeds to go with first love. And these get combined in, in the Hebrews exhortation that we goad one another to love and good deeds. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You might recall this from our Galatian series. That was a long time ago. That was way back in the Obama administration. Galatians was, we ended that in 2016 and started Philippians in 2017. And then we started Colossians this morning. All right, so Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. Let us not do, lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we not grow weary. See, the problem about doing good is you can get tired. Especially if you quit walking in the Spirit, you start doing good in the flesh, and then you really get tired because you're attempting stuff in human effort that's supposed to be done by the power of God. And so what do you need? You need goads. You need brothers and sisters to come alongside and say, you know what? It'd be easier if you were in fellowship. <laughs> you know what? Why don't you quit doing that until you uh, get done being carnal? How about if you, uh, you know, and this is what we do. And we goad one another, we, we prompt one another, and we poke. In due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, and you know, how long does that last? What if it ends today? It could end today. That trumpet could sound and our opportunities are over. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we're here to serve all of humanity, but we start with us. We start with the body of Christ. We start with Austin Bible Church. And we branch out from there. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is what? The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There it is. Love and good deeds are part of the first things for the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Why are we growing? Why are we learning? Why do we study the Bible? All Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's child training in righteousness, by the way. The disciplined paideia, child training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete or adequate, equipped for every, what kind of work? Every good work. So we have love and deeds. The goal of our instruction is love, and the Word of God equips us for every good work. Love and good deeds. I think the author of Hebrews just blended them together with these goads that we're commanded to do. And so we poke ourselves. We poke one another. 
that goad, the verb is oxuno, there's a noun form of it, but the idea is it's the accelerator pedal, pedal of the ancient world. They didn't have Ford Mustangs back then with uh, 760 horsepower. Wow, that's a sweet looking vehicle. All right. They had a stick, a sharp pointed stick, because it wasn't horsepower, it was an ox pulling, or two ox, or whatever, a team of oxen. And when you wanted to get those oxen in gear, your mechanism was to poke them. And that sharp poke was uh, aggravating to the oxen. It was their indicator that uh, they need to step it up. And so they would pull faster. And uh, it gets your attention. The poking gets your attention. And that's same in our, in our metaphor now. When we poke one another, it's an attention getter. When a brother comes alongside and has, a, has a, an exhortation for you, you can respond a couple of different ways. You could be carnal about it and say, well, who does he think he is? Or why, where, where does he get off? And why does he think? And what's he saying? My, my, my Christian walk is great. You know, my Christian walk is marvelous. Or it actually kind of slaps us and go, oh, wow, he's right. I, uh, I, my, my walk's not marvelous. I need to, Wow. And so sometimes that, that slap is just uh, enough to say, oh, I needed that. Wait a minute. And uh, yeah. And you thank God for it. Say, thank you that, that my brother loves me enough to say something. And uh, that he didn't just, you know, let me go and whatever. But he loved me enough to say something and say, you know, I think this has to be dealt with. And so we have the uh, consideration there. And, and how do you do it? What's, what's it going to take? I think the last thing that I want to glean out of this, let me get back to Hebrews again. I lost my place. Hebrews 10. Let us consider how. Ooh, it's an how-to. How-to, how-to, how-to. All right, so how am I going to do something? How am I going to do something? How are we going to get the Colossians memory books into people's hands? Uh, Are we going to put them in the foyer? Eh, They might get lost with the bulletins and the other missionary stuff. Are we going to put them in the fellowship hall? Ah, well, there's going to be a lot of food there. They might get lost there. How about if we just put them right up front? We just put them up here and we get folks to walk an aisle just like, you know, old days. And uh, yeah, let's do it like that. Okay. Is it the best method? Probably not, but it's what I thought of this morning. <laughs> All right. How? If you're trying to use inventiveness and creativity and imagination and wondering how, uh, well, the sky is the limit. How are you going to do anything? What do you want to do? What do you think is best? And you might be right, you might be wrong, but you're going to consider. And you're going to consider, and you're going to consider, and you're going to consider. And maybe you try stimulating and it didn't do anything. So what do you do then? Just give up? Or do you consider, maybe there's a different how, <laughs> okay? Maybe, well, how about this? Okay, well, how about this? And so we keep considering the different hows until, oh, that worked. <laughs> hey, all right. And, uh, and there you go. And you know what? It may not ever work again for a different person or even the same person down the road. But it worked that time for that person in that way. And, uh, and so, praise God, and, and we just keep considering. And this is our uh, a joy. So while we're holding fast, we're considering, and then we're not forsaking. The third lettuce is not forsaking. Not forsaking. Not forsaking our epi-sunagogei. Now, in the New American Standard, it reads, not assembling our own, not forsaking our own assembling together. And in the King James and New King James and all the other English texts, it's all very similar. Not forsaking our own assembling together is as the habit of some. And I'm going to work on this. We're going to retranslate this a little bit. Not forsaking our own assembling together is as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, because I think it's bigger than it appears on the surface. And, and I want to take the time to make sure that we're solid on this. Okay? Because it's bigger than it is on the surface on, by virtue of the word that's used here. A very unusual word that's only used two times in the New Testament. It's not the normal word for assembly. It's not ecclesia. It's not uh, a, a word that applies to the church. It's not even sunago. Uh, or uh, synagogue, any of those vocabulary. It's an intensive form of sunago. It's epi-sunago. And it's the, it's the noun epi-sunagoge. 
And so if you think about a synagogue or an assembly, a synagogue, right? That's where you're assembled together. That's where you're gathered together. And uh, so you're gathered together in a, in a, uh, an agoge or a sunagoge, okay? But this is an epi-sunagoge. It's intensified. And it's, it's uh, unique. It's unique to this passage and one other passage in all of the New Testament. And I'm, my thesis is that in both passages, it is a rapture reference. In both references, it is urging, uh, the idea here is urging the readers don't forsake rapture doctrine. Not forsaking rapture doctrine. That's my translation. It's a theological doctrinal translation here. So when it says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider, then it says, not forsaking rapture doctrine. Not forsaking our epi-sunagoge, as is the habit of some. So, let's talk about this. There is a a habit-forming danger in the body of Christ. There is a habit-forming danger to consider that the Lord is slow about His promise, as some count slowness. There is a habit-forming danger to grow complacent and consider that uh, the rapture is not imminent and we've got plenty of time and we can be like foolish virgins and not prepare oil or not even be mindful of imminent things. Okay? The, the whole thing is when God gives a principle of imminency, He expects diligence. That should be clear. Foolish virgins isn't church, that's Israel, but still, foolish virgins is a principle of imminency based on Second Advent. And so the concept remains diligence. Same thing for you and I. In the church, our uh, imminency application is the rapture. And it requires diligence. So the concepts are, are identical. They're parallel. Now, here's the word episunagoge. It's number 1997 in the Strong's uh, lexicon. So if there's anybody that was born in 1997, um, that's our off year. We were even numbered years on our kids. But um, find out what, you, what your, well, you know what your birth year is. Find out what that Strong's number is. And now you've got your own secret code for uh, your, own strong, your own Greek word based upon the year of your birth, based upon the Strong's number. And, uh, and you'll find out different things. <laughs> or not. All right, I think it's just fun. Just poke your way around the Bible and explore this and that, chase little rabbit trails, different places. All right. Now, episunagoge, the unique nature of this. Let's go to the other place that it's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Like I say, it's not a normal word. And Paul probably coined it himself. 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And he did so, having written about the rapture already in 1 Thessalonians 4, and having written about the second advent already in 1 Thessalonians 5. And so this church was solid on their eschatology. This church was, was the Thessalonians, were, were grounded on rapture doctrine and second advent doctrine and why they were separated. And all that was taught in 1 Thessalonians. And you would think everything would be great. Except somebody sent a counterfeit letter into Thessalonica, signed it as if they were the Apostle Paul, and told them, oops, I was wrong, uh, we're in the tribulation now, good luck. Okay? And Paul learns about this counterfeit letter and says, oh my, i got to fix that. So that's why we have Second Thessalonians in our Bible. He writes a rebuke to, this is critical, he writes a rebuke and a corrective to heresy that blends the rapture with the second advent. Are we clear? The, the purpose for writing this chapter, really the purpose for writing the whole book, is to correct the heresy that rapture and second advent are supposed to be conflated. They are not supposed to be conflated. They are supposed to be separated. They have to be separated, and this book proves it. So, we request of you, brethren, reading from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our epi 
are gathering together to Him. This is a term for the rapture. It's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, He comes to the air. He doesn't land on the earth. But it's the, the Lord Himself descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, harpazo, together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. So there's a paragraph in 1 Thessalonians 4 that details the whole rapture doctrine. There's a verse here that summarizes the entire thing. When he says, we, with, uh, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge together with him, he's talking about the rapture of the church. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Do you see that? So verse 1 is rapture, verse 2 is day of the Lord. What we would call tribulation and second advent. All right? So with respect to the rapture, don't let anyone scare you that says you're in the tribulation. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge, our episunagoge, it's the only context, the only thing it can be. Our, we have an episunagoge. And it's the same episunagoge that the Thessalonians had. It's the same episunagoge that the Hebrews readers had. It's the, it's the only episunagoge that anyone will ever have because there's only one rapture of the church. There's only one event where a body of redeemed are caught up. Epi, caught up together. We're not just gathered together, we're gathered together up there. We're gathered together in the air. It's unique. And there's only one. It's called the episunagoge. All right. So, verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. For the day of the Lord, that's the it, will not come. The day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. Now, here's another term for the episunagoge. It's called the apostasia. It's called the departure. And often it's translated as apostasy, as a transliteration rather than a translation. But understand, an apostasy is a doctrinal departure. I don't think this passage is talking about a doctrinal departure. This passage is talking about a physical departure. This passage is talking about our departure so that the Antichrist can arrive. It's about arrivals and departures here in this, in this paragraph. So, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue to, together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you The day of the Lord will not come, cannot come, unless the departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. You know, he can't even be revealed until we're out of here. The revelation of Antichrist can't happen until we are episunagoge, out of here. Raptured, out of here, gone. Once we depart, he can be revealed, right? Because there's a restrainer that's restraining him. You know what is restraining him now. You know he who restrains him now will do so until he is taken out of the way. The restrainer is God the Holy Spirit. He's a what and he's a he who. Verse 5 says, Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Rapture doctrine should be a no-brainer if you're solid, if you've had it taught, if you've had it clear. And then someone comes along and he tries to feed you a post-trib rapture view and you say, no thanks. Or he tries to feed you a mid-trib rapture view and you say, no thanks. Or a pre-wrath rapture view, which is kind of a quasi-mid-trib rapture view, and you say, no thanks. Pre-trib is the only solution, which is why 2 Thessalonians got written, to answer the heresy that the day of the Lord is here. It can't be here because we're still here. If we're still here, it's not here yet. Plain and simple. And that's the, that's the thought behind the argument, behind the purpose for the book. 
And so if you come up with some other interpretation, you're in defiance of the thought of the logic of the purpose of the book. Talking about 2 Thessalonians and why that was written. We also know that the coming of our Lord is habit-forming as far as this neglect is concerned because of the warning that Peter gives in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. And so this is an admitted weakness of our humanity, an admitted weakness of who we are as creatures of time bound by time, with the understanding that the longer that some uh, promises take, the tendency is for human beings to think that, well, it's been taking forever, maybe it's just not going to come. Or, well, it's been taking forever, so it's still going to take forever, even further, more forever, so I don't have to worry about it. Danger. That's a big danger. Peter says, know this first of all. So it's a primary warning for you and I. Know this first of all, then in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Some of those mockers are pastors, and some of those mockers write books. And some of those pastors are denying the rapture. It is, it is, more, it is more out of favor today than it's ever been. Dispensationalism is mocked. The pre-trib rapture is mocked. There are whole books that are out there about what's left behind and left behind. And they, uh, they're, they're, they're picking on Tim LaHaye in the title of his books by criticizing and, and trying to prove a post-tribulational rapture. They're really, I think they're just all millennials anyway, so they don't need a rapture. But they, uh, they have all this ridiculous stuff that they do to attack pre-tribulational rapture, uh, the, the rapture approach. And Peter predicted it here in Second Peter chapter 3. So here we are in the last days. Mockers have come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Now this is key because we're centered on promise. We're centered on promise. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. That's why when you're in Hebrews and you're studying our confession and His promise, this becomes a vital parallel text for us to consider. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This attitude has so swept our, not just our churches, this attitude has swept our entire culture. This attitude has swept Western science. This is known today as uniformitarianism among geologists and chemists and astrophysicists and everybody else. The the whole thing is that everything we see now, the processes we measure now, this is the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. Everything is gradual. Everything takes billions of years. Everything is slow process or change over time. And billions and billions of years, and here we go. It's always been this way. It'll always be this way. So there's an attitudinal thing that's happening here that we, cannot, we can even relate to current events and science and different, different things there. But theologically, though, the big snare is, is that, well, it's taken so long, it's probably not going to happen. Or it's not going to happen in our lifetime because it's taken forever anyway. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. <laughs> so Peter's saying, don't let it escape your notice, right? Because it sure escapes their notice, those mockers that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. You know, when judgment comes, it can come real quickly. You know, the flood can come. The destruction of the angelic earth came. The the destruction of this earth is coming. And so don't think that everything we see now is the way it's always been because when God intervenes, it is spectacular. And it happens quicker than you realize. So the world of that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, But what we have to look forward to is the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. What does that mean, reserved? That means it's by His Word. It's only by the mercy of Jesus Christ He hasn't blown up this universe already. He's waiting in obedience to the Father. That all He has to do is give the Word and everything explodes. Think about that. I think it's why He stayed so silent. He was under such spiritual pressure at His his trial. And he stayed silent. And he went to the cross. Can you imagine? If he'd have lost his temper, if he'd have shouted something, <laughs> could have obliterated the entire universe. 
All right. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. His timetable is not our timetable. He is eternal. We're finite creatures of time. And the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. And this is why. This is why rapture neglect is a, is a real issue. This is why the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect the episunagoge as is the habit of some. Do not neglect our episunagoge as is the habit of some. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It can be habit forming. God's not slow as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When it does finally happen, though, how fast is it going to be? Yeah, it's going to be sudden, like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Even the elements. Imagine that. So I mean, we've got this physical material universe. Imagine all that physical material universe gone, converted to energy, burned up. The elements, no more hydrogen, no more oxygen, no more nitrogen, no more CO2. That'll make the tree huggers happy. The, because even the CO2 is broken up. No more C, no more O2. It's all the physical creation, gone consumed, it says, passed away, destroyed. And uh, again, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Man, that's going to be fun to watch. All right. What a day. Well, what precedes that, of course, is the rapture. What precedes the tribulation is the rapture. What precedes, we understand the sequence of things that are coming up. We know that the destruction of the heavens and earth isn't until the end of the millennium anyway. It's after the Gog Magog rebellion. It's in between Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. And so today you can stop worrying about the end of the world because it won't be happening today. The rapture could be happening today. Then we got seven years, then we got a thousand years, then we got plus some uh, wiggle room in between those time frames, okay? A little gap between the, the, the church and the tribulation. A little transition of days between the tribulation and the millennium. All right. Not forsaking rapture doctrine. So now, if my thesis is correct, then when we read Hebrews 10, and let's read it together, let's read it two different ways. As we read Hebrews 10, it might be as simple as quit skipping church. Okay? And I admit, this is a very popular text for preachers. For 2,000 years, pastors go, this is their go-to verse to tell their church-skipping members, quit skipping church. All right? And I understand that. It lends itself to that. It's, but I don't think that's what it's really saying. Again, because of the unique nature of episynagoge, also because of the context of our confession and our hope. So let me ask you this. This is our confession that applies to the church universal, every believer from Pentecost to rapture. This is our hope that's been promised, our promise that's been given to every, the church universal, all believers, Pentecost to rapture. This is our episynagoge, that applies to all church-age saints from Pentecost to rapture. Our, our episynagoge. So not forsaking our episynagoge, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, exhorting, encouraging, comforting one another, parakaleoing one another, and all the more as you see the day. Now that, ver- that statement of the day, has no other context other than the episunagoge. There is no... Otherwise, if this is just quit skipping church, well, what day are we talking about then? As you see the day drawing near. 
but seeing the day drawing near. What's the one day that the whole church universal can be looking for? What's the one day? It's the rapture. It's the one day. It's the one promise. It's the one hope. The living hope that we have is the rapture. It's that's the one thing in common that we have with the Apostle Paul from 2,000 years ago. Every generation, every living generation of saints has had the same living hope, the same promise, the same day drawing near. And the same admonition to not forsake rapture doctrine as is the habit of some. That phony letter that got sent to the Thessalonians was urging them to forsake rapture doctrine and to start getting uh, prepped for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord has come. And, uh, you know, (laughs) um, in 52 AD, how bad was it? (laughs) You know, you kind of think, wow, when Nero becomes Caesar, now it's really bad. Or, uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, a president gets elected that we like or we don't like, and then people freak out. We're not in the day of the Lord yet. The man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed, and he can't be revealed. Believers with doctrine should be the most stable believers around. All right, as is the habit of some. Mutual reciprocal exhortation encouragement as the day without signs is seen nearer and clearer every day. Mutual reciprocal exhortation encouragement as the day without signs is seen nearer and clearer every day. We'll see if I can get through this in eight minutes. I don't know. The... uh, one of, the, one of the best ways to differentiate between the rapture and the second advent is the fact that the second advent has all kinds of signs. There are tons of signs. There are going to be some signs so obvious like, oh, the sun, moon, and stars going dark. That's a big indicator. Okay. Or wars and rumors of wars. I mean, there's a lot of signs. You're going to see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. That's a sign. There's going to be signs all over the place for the second advent of Jesus Christ. There are no signs of any kind for the rapture. And so it's a day without signs. Nevertheless, we see the day getting closer and closer. I look around and I see things I never thought I'd see before. I look around and I see, wow. And I don't want to tempt God. I don't want to say, how much worse can it get? Because I think God in His faithfulness would quite easily show me how much worse it could get. I I wouldn't want that. But still, you think, what, what is there left to, to plunge into? What, what, what possibly could be left before the trumpet sounds? It could happen today. This, the stage is set, the table is set. So mutual reciprocal exhortation and encouragement. This is not just the pastor encouraging his flock. This is every believer exhorting, encouraging every other believer in the flock. Every one of us is a, is a priest within the veil. Every one of us has a goat in hand. Every one of us should be poking one another in the uh, mutual reciprocal exhortation encouragement as the day without signs is seen clearer and clearer every day. All right, so quickly, Matthew 16 and verse 3. Pharisees wanted a sign from heaven and he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? That's a rebuke. And you should, I mean, if you've got secular things figured out, why are you not focused on spiritual things? Why aren't you looking around and seeing the indicators that uh, the hand of God's judgment is very quickly on its way? And uh, if he was less gracious, it would have been here by now. Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. It's an application for our loving one another. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we're supposed to love one another loving our neighbor here in the church. And it says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. 
live in the process of imminency. Live in the full realization that that we're not with the Lord yet, but we could be and we should be, and, and why are we still here? For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I can't believe. I mean, I was saved in 1973. Can you imagine? And we're still here. Wow. So how much longer is it going to take? I don't know how much longer it's going to take. I just know how long it's been. And we're that much closer. We're that much closer. I remember on my ordination, 1994, it was 25 years ago. And I remember some of the questions that Ralph was asking and John Eichmann was asking, Emil, Emil Schmidt was asking, Sandy's dad, asking me all these questions about, and, and then I thought, and I think I answered in one of those replies, you know, because they had ministry over decades. Glenn had ministry over decades. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to have ministry over decades. I'm going to have ministry for a year or two, you know. I mean, this was the Clinton administration after all. We have Ahab and Jezebel going on. What are we, what are, you know, thinking, we're going to be with the Lord before you know it. It's closer than when we believed. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Recognizing that there's family life and sometimes there's distractions. Which is why if you're single, you don't have the marital distractions. And God can use that. If you're married, then you do have marital distractions. And it's not wrong, it's just you know it for what it is. And so uh, you have to... uh, You have to apply the Word of God and have victory in your marriage life and in your Christian life. When it says the time has been shortened, I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they have none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, For the form of this world is passing away. In other words, be heavenly minded. When you get to heaven, you're not going to have a wife. So be heavenly minded. It doesn't mean neglect the wife you have now. It means be heavenly minded. Likewise, those who weep as though they did not weep. It's not wrong to weep here and now, but in your weeping, be heavenly reminded because you're headed for a place where you're not going to be weeping. We're bound for the promised land. No more weeping, no more tears. The first things have passed away. So the time has been shortened. The whole church age is a time of shortened imminency. 1 Peter 4, 7. This is potluck Sunday, so no one's going anywhere. I'm I'm justifying, (laughs) rationalizing. What if I go late? 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. How much nearer do you think it is today? Now it's near, near. So the end of all things in uh, 2019 is near, near, near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit uh, for the purpose of prayer. Keep fervent in your love for one another. I would say this is right in line with hold fast your confession without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Consider how to love one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Don't neglect rapture doctrine because the end of all things is near. Second Peter 3, 12-14. And I'll close uh, the way I opened. All right. You know, everything's going to get destroyed, so what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening in the coming day of God. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be diligent. Poke one another. Poke one another. Consider how to stimulate one another to love 
and good deeds. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. I thank you for the intimacy we have within the veil and that we're here to worship you. We're here to serve you. We're here to love you. And we're here to stimulate one another. I thank you, Father, that you designed the Levitical priesthood to have a a single high priest going in there by his own self one day a year. But you designed our priesthood to have an apostle and high priest who opened the veil and entered as a forerunner and who brings all of us within the veil. And then I thank you, Father, that we're here not just one day a year, but all day, every day, worshiping, praising, praying, obtaining grace and finding mercy to help in time of need and stimulating one another to love and good deeds. I pray that we hold fast. I pray that we consider. I pray that we fulfill everything as a congregation that Hebrews 10 calls us to fulfill. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.